Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Andrew Crable. He's an associate professor of English literature at Trinity University, and is currently working on critical editions and various translations of the Latin works of the prolific English mystic he's here to speak about today, the wonderful Richard Rolla. Andrew, thanks for being here. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. This is going to be fun. I mean, it certainly will if I have anything to say about it. Now, today is another one of our lovely Double Up episodes. We've previously had Louise Nelstrop on to speak about Richard Rolla, and that was a phenomenal episode, but there are so many different angles to come at these mystics from, so we always get an interesting new perspective. And it works very nicely as a compliment, I think, because, you know, I enjoyed listening to Louise's episode as well, just because, you know, the theologian talking about this is so different than the literary scholar talking about this. And she knows so many things that I don't know. I might know a few things she doesn't know. I will, we'll see. But it really is wonderful, the sort of interdisciplinarity that comes with the study of the mystics. Absolutely. I think the study of mysticism really does benefit from a multidisciplinary approach. Now, before we get into Rolla, I want to talk a little bit more about you. How did you find yourself studying Rolla, studying mysticism in general? Well, I started reading this stuff as an undergraduate on a lark with a professor whose introductory class I had taken and Amy Hollywood, who is a wonderful authority on all of this stuff, and saw what she was teaching the next term. I had no idea what it was because what undergraduate does. And I took it and I sort of got hooked. And that sort of drew me into literary studies more generally, even though uh, Amy is in religious studies. That's her background. Um, in grad school, I sort of stepped away from this for a bit just because I really got into my other great interest, medieval literary theory and criticism and commentary on the Bible. But as I was writing my dissertation, the uh, big author, the author who really matters for the translation of the Bible into English in the first half of the 14th century, before the age of Chaucer, also happens to be one of the most prolific mystics in medieval England, and that, that's Richard Rolla. So Rolla sort of started as this character, this sort of topic within one of my dissertation chapters. He's there, he's got, he's got a chapter in the book that came out of the dissertation. It was the first chapter I wrote, and from there on, I've just sort of been hooked in. I've been trying to figure out more about what's going on with this guy, because he is so unusual, I think. <laughs> And we are absolutely always here for some unusual. So for those who have not listened to Louise's episode, episode 18, if you haven't, you should go back and listen to it. Or for those who listened to it when it came out, and that has been quite some time ago, a refresher would certainly be helpful. Could you tell us a little bit about who Richard Rolla was? Sure. So Rolla was born probably in the last decades of the 13th century or right around 1300. He was born in the East Riding of Yorkshire. And one of the early details we know about Rolla's life is that he studies at Oxford. He does not stay there very long, though, because apparently everyone at Oxford is just godless, and he wants to be focused more on, you know, the contemplative life. So he goes back to his father's home in Yorkshire. He decides to take up the life of a mystic. And in one of his later texts, he gives us a very detailed blow-by-blow -blow of what happens after that. He says he lives as a hermit for about three years, and then he has his first mystical experience. He's able to see into heaven. He says the gates of heaven open up for him, and he's able to see the angelic citizens. That persists for just about a year. Then he gets his first experience of what he calls kalor or fervor, the sort of divine heat that we can talk more about. And it's about a year after that, that he first begins to hear what he thinks of as like the pinnacle of mystical experience that's possible in this life. He gets to hear the angelic song. And this is not like song that you hear with your ears. It's more like being able to perceive the music of the spheres in some kind of Neoplatonic 
or Boethian sense. And so all of this happens within four years or so of him taking up the life of a hermit. And from there on out, he is just, he spends his career trying to figure out what all of this is, how it fits into an earlier tradition of religious literature, how it fits into other ways of talking about mystical theology, how it fits into what is said in the Bible, and how to draw other people to similar priorities, and how to get people who are not living according to those priorities to clean up their act. It all spurs this amazingly prolific literary career that seems to last for the next two, two and a half decades uh, until 1349, when he dies probably of the plague with, you know, a good chunk of England doing the same. I mean, dying from the plague was absolutely a common pastime at this point in history. I also love the idea, looking at this from a modern perspective, that anyone in 14th century England could be considered godless. That's phenomenal. But also, the idea that if you drop out of Oxford and run away to live in the woods, you can also see into heaven. Yeah, it's hard to know what to do with that because this is the time of like Thomas Bradwardine and like there are big, you know, important theologians writing in Oxford in this period. It's probably in part literary convention. Lots of people say this. It's probably also frustration of the fact that if he's going up to Oxford for a couple of years, he's probably doing an arts course. And it's probably frustration that he's not reading theology without having to do the arts first. So yeah, hard to know what to do with that. I mean, if you'd asked me in my first year of my undergraduate degree how I felt about having to take math and natural science and all of these things as prerequisites so that I could continue with a history degree, I probably would have felt very similarly. Just to backtrack a second to this vision that you mentioned about the celestial beings, and I think you mentioned that it was a persistent vision. What exactly does that mean? Was it repeated or is he kind of constantly seeing these celestial beings around him? Do we know what that actually entailed? I'm going to try not to say this too many times because I feel like I could actually say this a lot of it, but it's really hard to know. He is a bit cagey about what that actually means. He writes a lot more about the other two experiences, in part, I think, because he can't find people talking about those kinds of experiences in other literature. And I sort of suspect that he thinks that the idea of mystical vision is not been there, done that, but like, if you want, you can read Augustine on that. So he doesn't write about it quite as much. He talks about the gates of heaven being open to him and then remaining open. But he doesn't talk about much, really, of what he sees. This is not the same thing as like, being able to see God. He's very clear about that. He doesn't think that that's really possible in this life. And anybody who says that they see God in this life, by implication, they mean to say through a mirror darkly, right? They don't mean in the same way as the beatific vision would work. So it's hard to know exactly what he means by that, but it is there. It's also complicated because he uses the same figure, the gates of heaven are open, to describe inspiration both for his own writing and also for the ability to interpret scripture. So it works as a metaphor there for him. And so when he's using it that way and when he's using it the other way is uh, opaque, I think, a lot of the time. I think that there is a almost dichotomy in mystical works between those that are opaque and kind of recognizing the ineffability of the things that they're writing. And you really get that vibe versus those that are very, I saw a tree. Here is what the tree said. Here is what the tree means. And I think that it's really interesting and really fun that we have both because the ineffability of mystical experience, the seeing of things that nobody else has necessarily seen and experienced and then trying to put those into language to communicate. It's a really interesting process that I really like and I like getting to play with it. But there is something that feels almost genuine about 
I'm going to not tell you exactly what this is because that would mean that I have to understand it. And frankly, I don't. Right. And I don't think that Rala is as interested in pursuing a kind of pseudo-Dionysian project, right? And I think Louise compared him to the author of The Cloud of Unknowing in these terms a bit in her episode too, right? Like he's not so interested in trying to find ways of using language to get you to think things beyond what language lets you think, right? Like that sort of apophatic tradition is not there, but he's much more interested in the ability of his writing to make you feel things, right? And to put you in the right kind of affective disposition for further openness to mystical experience. He's also profoundly not visual in his writing, right? Like the things that he's describing, those experiences of bodily heat, those experiences of heavenly song, are so far away from Julian talking about a bleeding crucifix, right? Or the, a thing the size of a hazelnut in her hand, right? It's really all about these non-visual feelings and perceptions, right? Getting the other kind of bodily senses involved in the mystical experience, which is, you know, I think he's right to sort of say like, wait, where am I supposed to find this in other mystical literature? I guess I better write about it because that is really unusual uh, in the tradition, I think. And I think the question of the senses and sensorial perceptions is particularly interesting with regards to these mystical experiences, because it implies some sort of physicality, a bodily reaction, a way of engaging with the vision, with whatever space one is in, with this experience that uses the physical senses, which of course opens up more questions about where the mystic is, where the body is, if the soul itself has a sense of smell and taste that are really, really interesting to think about. Yeah, and I think Rala is keenly interested in taking advantage of the senses, the sort of sense experiences of his readers, even if they haven't had, you know, and he assumes that they haven't had the experiences he has had he has to describe them. He has to sort of evangelize for them. But, you know, he knows how to make his readers feel feelings. And he's keen on getting that whole sort of body involved. And I love the sort of tradition generally. Like, I love teaching Julian and I love teaching the cloud and, and reading these texts. But like, there's something about the cloud. There's something about Marguerite Perrette where you can often feel like, wait, is there a body doing this? Or is it a brain in a vat, right? And Rala is really keen on having that whole sort of body of the reader involved throughout the devotional contemplative experience. And when you're talking about him making this assumption that his readers won't have had the experiences that he has had, and so he needs to describe them so that they will understand what he's talking about, how does that work in terms of things like celestial song, which, as you mentioned, isn't like regular singing, isn't like regular music? So how does he go about describing something like that to those who have no concept of what that could possibly mean? Right. And there's a long tradition that I think we're moving away from in more recent scholarship on Rala. There's a long tradition of reading his manneristic style, all of his alliteration, the internal rhyme that's built into a lot of his stuff. Even like he writes a commentary on the Psalms. That's why he shows up in my first book. And it is pretty staid technical prose, except every now and then he writes in verse. This wasn't pointed out really clearly in the 19th century edition. So I think people don't notice who have worked on this, like how many poems are actually in his commentary on the Psalms, which is totally wild. But people have read those sort of sonic effects, that sort of formal tendency in his writing as trying to imitate the heavenly song, trying to give the reader a sense of what that sounds like. And I think it's better to think of that as trying to play on the affects of the reader, trying to encourage them emotionally towards these experiences. Because he says that hearing other people singing 
disrupts his ability to hear heavenly song. And he says that if you're thinking about it in terms of, you know, the racket that we can make with our mouths, then you've got it wrong, right? This is not what it means. And yet, at the same time, he says, as soon as he starts hearing this angelic song, forever after, things that he used to say, he sings. His psalms, his prayers, everything is sung in harmony with this angelic song. But what that actually means when he says it's not like the noise that you make with your tongue against your hard palate, right? Like, what that could possibly mean is really tricky. And so that is where he comes close to sort of doing that, like, if you think it's that, you're wrong kind of move. But he still spills a lot of ink on describing it. I think that all nonfiction, historical, scholarly works would just be better if occasionally people just wrote in verse for fun. Why aren't we doing that? That sounds great. I don't know. I'm thinking of some historians who I definitely don't want to read their poetry or their novels, but maybe, maybe it would be something different. Well, let's just leave that there and not go about naming any particular names. Now, you mentioned that Rolla has a rather extensive corpus. So let's talk a little bit about that. Which of his works or which genre of his works do you engage with the most and find the most intriguing? Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, my way into it was really through the commentaries, right? That one of the things that Rollo does throughout his life, and I think he does this early on, in part for his own benefit. I think early in his career, he gets his hands on some copies of like the staples of scholastic exegesis, things like Peter Lombard on the Psalms, the Glossa Ordinaria on the Book of Lamentations, and he prepares his own sort of calcs on these texts. And he writes some of his own interpretations in as he goes, but he basically is preparing abridged versions of some of these sort of classics of scholastic interpretation, I think so that he can reference them himself. And he's really curious to see what of his own experience he can find in these texts. So that's a really big part of his corpus. And it persists throughout his career. He's writing exegesis. One of the last texts he writes is probably an English commentary on the Psalms, in part translating from his Latin, but going back again to the same source that he used for his Latin commentary and putting it together, presumably for the nuns, the Cistercian Priory of Hampole, where he was living near the end of his life, maybe for one of them in particular, who was an anchoress who he seems to have been close to. But be that as it may, that's sort of continuing throughout his career. At the same time, the other sort of big portion of his corpus that I'm interested in are the treatises where sometimes writing postals, right, like taking a biblical verse and doing a bit of exegesis of it to sort of make it sound like it relates to his experiences. He's much more interested in setting out his big ideas about the religious life, talking about his experiences, talking about some of his doctrine of God, although that is mostly, I think, trying to demonstrate his orthodoxy, because he then goes on to say some weird things. And so it's good to have that kind of credentialing done. And also, of course, I mean, one of the things that has attracted other writers to him recently is the way he then turns around and just rails against anybody who is interested in acquiring, you know, wealth in this world, anybody who's interested in acquiring bodily pleasure for its own sake, anybody who just wants to, you know, eat all the best foods and not give to the poor and things like that, right? There's a, a Bernie Broish tone in some of his writings here and there, which has attracted attention. I mean, there's a, a recent collection of poetry by a Northern English poet, Steve Ely, called In 
Incendium Memoris, which is one of the uh, titles of one of Rolla's treatises, which is a really interesting sort of reflection on the character in exactly those kind of counter-cultural sort of proto-revolutionary terms. So yeah, that's the sort of scope of things. There are other sort of letters and briefer treatises here and there, but for my money, trying to figure out how to read the exegesis and the sort of mystical treatises as part of a related project is what makes this author really interesting. I find it really interesting that you're talking about the modern interpretation and adoption of these perspectives and the potential popularity of Rolla amongst groups of people now. But as Louise mentioned in her episode, he was actually wildly popular during his own time as well. Yeah. So in his time, maybe, right? He's really popular about half a century after he dies, right? So I think, you know, we have in his lifetime as a hermit, right? Like he's not writing for other members of a religious order. He's not writing in a city where he can get into sort of metropolitan publication networks. It really seems like in his lifetime, he's writing for a handful of people he probably knows, right? Other hermits, priests, anchorites, nuns. And we can see, uh, you know, because I'm editing some of these texts, as you say, we can see in the transmission of these works that there are some copies that seem to have been identified as like early and interesting. And so later scribes will preserve marginalia from what they take to be an early copy of Rala. And so we end up with this really fascinating like textual cult happening here. But that's because like the big popularity doesn't start until he's been dead and buried for five decades or so. And then all of a sudden, everybody wants to get their hands on him. Like literally, like the number of people who claim to have autograph manuscripts, copies of his text written in his own hand is kind of like people claiming to have relics of the true cross, right? Like there's no way he actually wrote that many books himself. There's no way that the cross would ever be that big. So it's in the 15th century, I think in large part, and this is uh, not my idea, right? But like, I think in large part, English ecclesiasts looking for an orthodox English spiritual author who is novel and interesting who they can bring with them to Europe, they can bring with them to the Council of Constance and say, like, this is what we've got going on back here, uh, is, is part of what gets this going. But the Middle English works also take off very quickly in this period as well. So it's, in some ways, the Latin author and the English author are a little bit different in that respect. That is a really interesting way of gaining popularity, being an example of what English mysticism has to offer. <laughs> now, making this slightly more personal, you have edited and worked with so many of Rolla's texts, but what right this minute is your very favorite one? There is a single obvious answer here, which is the text I've just edited and translated. I mean, that's a really good reason for it to jump to the top of the list. What is the text you've just worked on? So the one I've just edited and translated is a commentary he seems to write at the very end of his life, where he takes lessons from Job that are read in the Office of the Dead. And he just sort of puts them through the sort of Rala interpretation machine, right? He just sort of reflects on them and he gives you his reflections. He gives you his exegesis of these passages, sort of creating something that is a commentary on these passages from Job, but is also like a devotional script, devotional prompt, trying to sort of get other readers to meditate on their mortality along with Rala, weaving in some of the mystical experiences throughout. I mean, it's an incredibly rich text. So I have to say that, right? Like that's like it is fascinating and it has not been part of really earlier studies of Rala since there hasn't been a proper edition or any translation at all of it before. Uh, so I hope that that's useful for folks and as interesting to other people as it is for me. My answer really, though, in my heart of hearts, is not all that surprising. It's his fire of love. This text is called Incendium Amoris. 
which seems to be one of his earlier efforts to describe his mystical experiences, to talk about to talk about the ways that the contemplative life orients one towards God, proper ideas of loving God and how that compares to misunderstanding of love that leads people to love the world, all of that stuff. Like it's an amazingly rich, weird, just kind of vaguely formless text. Uh, and it is it's a fascinating one. Yeah. So Fire of Love is and I mean, I'm editing that now, so I, I would plug that too. <laughs> We're just going to plug all the future books. And when they are out, you will be able to see tweets about them and it's going to be great. So do you have a particular passage or moment from these texts that you would want to share? Yeah, I think the thing that is most startling about Fire of Love is where it starts. And so in a way, this feels kind of like a, an obvious answer, but I think it's really novel, right? Like many of Rolla's texts, like many late medieval religious texts generally, will start with like a quotation of a biblical verse. They will start with like a little preamble that introduces you to what the text is. The start of this text is just wildly different. It leaves you sort of wondering what's going on for a while. And it teases out all of the things that I've been talking about with regard to the sort of sensory play and the sort of affective response that he's looking for from his readers. Can I read a little bit of it? Absolutely. That'd be fantastic. Can I read a little bit of it in Latin? Sure. Why not? Okay. So I just want to read a little bit in Latin because it features this alliteration that Rolla is known for. And, you know, I think it's important to sort of keep in mind what this sounds like when we, we think about what's going on here. So I'll just read a little bit of it in Latin and then I'll give you the English. So it starts right out of the gate with the first person verb. Admirabar amplius quam enuncio quando si quidem sentivi cor meum primitus incalescere et vere non imaginarie sed quasi sensibili igne estuare eram equidem atonitus quem modum eruperat ardor in animo et de insolito solatio propter inexperientiam huius abundantiae saepius pectus meum si forte eset fervor ex aliqua exteriori causa palpitavi. He struck his chest. What does that all sound like? So this is how this text starts. He says, I wondered more than I can put into words when I first felt my heart grow hot and burn, not imaginarily, but with, as it were, fire that I could feel. I was stunned by how this ardor erupted in my soul and in response to this unfamiliar comfort, since I had not previously experienced its abundance, I touched my chest many times to see if the warmth was coming from some external source. When I realized that rather than coming from my flesh, this fire of love boiled up wholly from within, and that the desirous state in which I remained was a gift of the Creator, rejoicing, I melted into a feeling of even greater love, in particular because of the influx of sweetest delight and inner sweetness which, together with that spiritual fervor, inwardly soaked my mind. Indeed, before the comforter's heat was poured into me, and before I found sweetness in every act of devotion, I did not think that such inward ardor came to anyone in this exile, for it so inflames my soul that it is as if an elemental fire were burning there. She's like, what a way to start a text, right? Like, who is this speaker? Who is this I wondered who is saying this right out of the gate, right? Like, many of the manuscripts don't even begin with any kind of title or authorial attribution. You just start with this I wondered more than I could put into words. But don't worry, there will be a lot of words that come after this. It's just, it's wild. And it's so typical of the kinds of rhetorical strategies that he pursues 
really trying to engage his readers both in their feeling and in their intellect. And I think it's really great to have a text start with, I thought this thing, I was wondering about this, and so here you go. It makes it so personal from the very beginning. Right. And in a way that like we're not unused to, right? Like there are plenty of mystics who talk about their experiences, but like it's weird to have, I think, this kind of, first of all, it's weird to have it not be a visual sort of sensation that's being described. And it's also, I think, strange to be brought in right out of the bat with like the kind of doubts that the author has, right? Like he's discerning spirits, right? He's doing discretio spiritum in real time at the start of this text, which is just so strange. And I love that we're seeing the discretio spiritum in the first person. We're seeing what he is thinking about these revelations that he's having, because oftentimes we do see them mediated through a hagiographer or a scribe. We have another person saying, oh, this person is so holy and you will read this work correctly and see that they are if you have a good Christian heart. So to see that coming immediately out of the gate from the author himself is really intriguing. Right. And imagine that you're one of the early readers of this text, right? Imagine that you are like another hermit who knows Rala, who has encountered him. So like, you know, hermits are not without networks, right? Maybe you are an older hermit who has given him advice when he started out in this way of life. And then you get this text that starts with, so one day my heart was on fire, like wild stuff was happening in Yorkshire in the 14th century, I guess, is part of the takeaway here. And, you know, back to what we were saying about the popularity of him as a writer, it starts with this kind of coterie of Latinate readers. But in the 15th century, right, as Rolla is getting to his more sort of popular phase in his reception, this text is translated into Middle English. And it's wild to see the translator Richard Mizzen in his preface say, like, this is a wonderful, wholesome text that is in every way in keeping with what we teach you about the Decalogue and the Articles of Faith, wonderfully in line with all the biblical teaching about love. And now over to Rala. And like, it's wild, right? Like, how can both of these things be true, translator? And yet he seems to think that they are. It's great. And in that, we still see some couching it in justification and him covering himself saying, all of this is completely orthodox and it fits with everything that we're teaching you. For it then to turn into, my heart is on fire. Like, it's really easy to read these things as heretical. And so the idea of starting it with that, I am only giving you this thing that is absolutely what you should be reading, to then be confronted with something that is so challenging and, as you said, completely wild, must have been something else. Right. And he sees this as a novelty. In one of his other texts, he compares what he does as an interpreter of scripture to what Augustine, Jerome, what the fathers did generally. And he says, like, they saw many wonderful things and they wrote about many deep mysteries that I don't know about. I've got this one thing, right, that they probably knew about but chose not to write about because the time wasn't right. And so that's what I am offering, right? I have my gift to add to this received literary tradition of contemplative texts and of biblical interpretation. 
And so like, he's aware, like he wants to toe a kind of orthodox line, but he also wants to say that like religion is progressive and that new understandings, new ideas, new things that have not been part of the canon can arise and can be added and can be totally listed as fantastic as they sound. And he just happens to be the modern, you know, saint who gets to be the conduit for that. I mean, he, he tries to put it in the sort of most humble terms he can, I think, but it's a bold claim, right? Absolutely. And the bold claims are always the most fun ones to interrogate. Now, speaking of interrogation, you are a translator of these texts, and we know that we have both Latin and Middle English versions. Do we see a lot of discrepancies between the two? Are the Latin and Middle English contemporary? Do we know who was involved in making these translations and what their purpose was? So he is, in a sense, kind of his own first translator insofar as there are passages from like some of his early Latin works that show up again when he writes in Middle English late in his life. And as I do my translating of his Latin, it's really fun to sort of see like what words in Latin are there in Middle English. And I try to, you know, when he says detractor in Latin, I'm like, okay, we could say, we could say detractor, but like when he writes about this in Middle English, he says backbiter. So let's say backbiter. That's nice and evocative anyway, right? Somebody's nibbling at your back like a pain in the ass. So that sort of thing is interesting, I think. And really his decision to move from Latin to Middle English seems primarily to be driven by audience. I think that perhaps throughout, he imagines his Latin writings potentially being accessible to women because they can be read out loud to them, right? It's described in the Book of Marjorie Kemp that Marjorie has one of Rolla's texts, The Fire of Love, that we were just reading from, read to her by her priest. I would be shocked if the same thing wasn't happening in Julian's cell at around the same time. So that sort of thing is possible. I think towards the end of his career, whether it reflects particular relationships with female religious or just more confidence in himself as a writer and an interest in cutting out the kind of mediation of Latin readers. He starts writing in English. And there's a single manuscript in Cambridge University Library that is very detailed about like, this text was written for a nun in this convent near where he grew up. This text was written for this recluse in this anchor hole, that sort of thing. And I think we want to be generous in our reading of those things and sort of give the scribes who put that together the benefit of the doubt there, because it feels like it should be accurate. So that's part of where the Middle English tradition of Rolla comes from. And then in the 15th century, as part of his appeal grows, yeah, he's translated, the Latin works are translated into Middle English. The Fire of Love and one of his big overviews of the religious life called the Emendatio Vitae. But it also works in the other direction. His most popular Middle English work called The Form of Living, probably written for an anchoress called Margaret Kirkby, who he sort of miraculously cured towards the end of his life when she, I think it was that she had lost her voice or something like that. He goes to her anchor hold. She sort of leans out the window on his shoulder, and a day later, she's feeling all better. He writes this large text, a sort of overview of how the contemplative life is to be lived, called The Form of Living. And this gets translated going in the other direction. And what's fascinating about that is that, like, the Latin translators keep many of the female pronouns. They foreground the fact that this is written for a woman. But, like, hey, an international audience might be interested in this. 
a Latin reader might be interested in imagining this kind of female piety as enriching their own spiritual life. And so it's, it's wonderful to see those things move in both directions, right? That translating is happening across languages with Rala as the authority. That's really interesting. And I mean, this might be difficult to answer given how many things we actually have written by him. But does it seem like he writes differently for women than he writes for men or other hermits or just when he's explicating his own experiences? Is there a difference in tone or in topics? Or does he write the same for everyone? I think that... He doesn't write differently because he's writing for women, right? Aside from the language choice. I think what happens in part is that he knows that if he's putting something in the vernacular and that it's going to be read by someone who needs to read it in the vernacular, right? And therefore can't be accessing texts in Latin. He knows that everything that he wants his reader to have, he has to provide. There isn't a large substantive tradition of Middle English at this point. That's coming, right? There's a large tradition of French in England that could be a precedent perhaps further in the South in England. But so he has to give everything that he wants his reader to have when he's writing in English. And I think one of the fascinating upshots of this is that I said that he writes a commentary on the Psalter twice. The one in Latin is far less ambitious than the one in English. When he turns to write in English for women at the end of his life, he's actually making much more sophisticated demands of the reader's ability to parse senses of scripture, to be able to sort of hold alternative interpretations in her mind. He really demands that the anchoress or the nun or whoever is reading the Middle English commentary is able to think like a scholastic theologian. And it's, it's fascinating to see the expectation, first, that they can do that, and second, that that is a useful thing for fostering his vision of the contemplative life. And while we're on the topic of writing and writing style and the things he includes, we talked earlier about him writing in verse and that people have wondered whether this is him attempting to replicate celestial song. But he also did write poetry. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Does he talk about different things in the poetry versus the other works? Or is this just a different method of saying similar things? I mean, in some cases, it comes unexpectedly. He has poems that just appear in his prose works, right? As he's getting the reader worked up, right? As he's building to a kind of affective crescendo, all of a sudden you'll realize that these things are in like Galliardic quatrains, right? Like they're in a sort of schoolroom verse form. One of the rhetorical stops that he can pull out is suddenly composing in verse. So one of the interesting things about editing him is like always being on the, the lookout for like, wait, what's the do-do-do-do-do-do? Oh, wait, we're writing poetry now. Good job, Rala. And noticing as that happens. But he also has several freestanding, if you want to call them that, freestanding poems in Latin and in Middle English. A Latin poem in praise of the Virgin, which this being Rala is also just as much about him and the contemplative life as it is about the Virgin. And even more prolifically, in Middle English, he writes verse. And he seems to have imagined these things as modern psalms, right? Like the way he talks about the biblical book of Psalms in his writings and the way he recommends that his readers who are pursuing the contemplative life turn to the psalms to sort of get their affective juices flowing, to get their thinking about God and Christ and the Virgin in all the right ways, to feel the right feelings. That's what he expects the psalms to do. And he says that in the beginning of his commentary. And then again, it's wild that after saying that, he turns to like really fiddly grammatical parts parsing of the text, right? Like you need to know that in order to have the affections work the right way. 
but he seems to write these Middle English poems to add to the Psalter, to sort of say like, yeah, the canon ain't closed necessarily, and we can do more, right? I can write things that are, I think in some ways, formally designed to imitate his understanding of Psalms, as he talks about them in his commentaries. And he wants his poems to be part of his readers' devotional exercises in much the same way that the Psalms were. And so they are all about the sort of high-flown affective language of love for Christ, of repudiation of the world, fear of the last judgment, meditation on the crucifixion, all the things that you would expect. But in some cases, actually, one of the Middle English poems takes a passage from that Latin treatise I was reading before, Fire of Love, and says, this will be good as English verse. And so he translates it and makes it into poetry, which is just delightful. It's the sort of thing that you're taught to do as a schoolboy in the Middle Ages, right? Like you learn to write Latin by writing verse, you learn to write Latin by taking something in English and turning it into Latin poetry, vice versa sometimes. And so he's taking some of these basic schoolroom practices and using them to develop further his mystical program and to create as full a body of texts as he can for especially the female readers at the end of his life, those Cistercian nuns, I suspect. Fantastic. Okay, we are coming towards the end of the podcast now. So there is the one final question, the question of the podcast, which is, why is Richard Rolla your favorite mystic? I mean, he's up there with Julian, right? It's hard to say anybody but Julian is one's favorite. And I think the fact that the two of them are so similar is, at least in my mind, part of the appeal, right? Like, he is deeply devoted to exploring this idea of love as a complicated concept, that love is what makes the world go round, and that it is nothing simple right? That to say God is love is a really profound, really richly complex claim. And he wants to sort of draw out all of the meaning of that. And he keeps circling around to finding different ways to talk about it and to make his experiences speak to that. And just the degree to which he, as I've said, is invested in the body's place in all of this, right? That the whole person, intellect, affect, body, mind, that we as a whole person have to be involved in these kinds of spiritual disciplines is really unusual, I think, and really pointed in his writings. And it makes him fascinating. He refuses to force himself into any kind of consistency. And so he's constantly, again, like Julian, writing around the same ideas to figure out what he really thinks. And so the feeling that you can think with a writer like this and that you can recuperate some of the process of their developing ideas, that you can see a literary career as it develops, it is unusual in my experience of reading medieval literature. And just the richness of this corpus means that I feel like there's so much to do with him. And the fact that we've been able to have two episodes with barely any overlap shows just how much he's written and how much there is to potentially do with these texts. Absolutely. There's so much. And and I mean, even to the point that like he he puts on different personas in his writing, right? Like that's part of why he, he can be so rich to explore, right? He tries out different ways of writing, different sort of perspectives and attitudes to adopt. And so, yeah, here is God's plenty, as it were. Here it is indeed. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Richard Rolla. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Maria Owen about Brigitte of Sweden.